Welcome to The Elephant in the Room with Bishop Michael Bellamy. Today's episode is produced by Nastasha Powers and Associate Pastor Corey Lyndon Bellamy Sr. During our last podcast, we talked about parents and guardians starting the conversation with their children to help prevent them from falling victim to child sexual abuse. No age is too early to begin the conversation. In this week's podcast, we ask for your permission to speak directly to your teenagers about sexual violence prevention. We can work together because it takes a village to end the vicious cycle of abuse in our homes and our communities. I know you may say, Bishop, my home is safe. It's a safe zone for all children. And that's the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is most children and youth do not disclose child sexual abuse. Listen closely. Three out of four children will not tell an adult or guardian they have been sexually abused. The one in four that discloses to a family member or friend usually waits between three years and 18 years to talk about being victimized. According to an article published by Psychology Today. Look at it this way. The average classroom size is 20 to 30 students. Five students in the classroom are likely to have been sexually assaulted in a class of 20. Or more than seven students are likely to have been assaulted in a class size of 30. In today's episode, we will discuss the importance of teaching our youth the signs of grooming and sexual violence to prevent abuse. We will also discuss how youth can advocate for themselves. Please uh, welcome Nastasha Powers back to the elephant in the room. She is a coordinator of advocacy and education for Stepping Stones at the YWCA in McLean County, Illinois. Hello, Nastasha. Welcome back. Hello. The previous conversation we had was deep. We cover a lot of territory, and I believe that it was very helpful to many people. Who is Erin, and what's her story? Erin Marin, um, she is actually one of the reasons why we have educators in the community that are able to go into public schools and teach um, prevention education. And so to give you a brief, give our youth a brief overview of who Erin was, Erin was someone who was just staying the night at a friend's house and her uncle or her best friend's uncle harmed her and told her not to tell anyone. And because Erin did not know what prevention was or Erin was not taught that she can come to somebody and be protected she remained silent from the abuse that she encountered from her best friend's uncle. 
So then Erin moved away out of a town a diff, to a different town with her family, but then became re-victimized or she got hurt again continuously by her older cousin. And she still remained silent because she didn't know that she can talk about it. It wasn't until she found out that her sister was being harmed too that she spoke up and started to talk about it. And Erin has not stopped talking since then. She went before the state legislators and she got the law passed for us to be able to talk about sexual violence prevention in the school. But it needs to go further than that. It should also be talked about in the home, in the community, and even in our churches. So what are the chances of a person like Aaron who has been who was who was abused once then being abused multiple times you know by different people or the same person a lot of times when it comes down to predators victims are often re-victimized one because they know that their survivors or their victims are scared to talk about it they have been threatened and when it comes down to it um, the likelihood of them being re-victimized actually occurs more often than you think. So who is most likely to to harm or offend? How would you how would you describe or characterize the offenders? Nine out of ten offenders of survivors that are minors are actually people that the victim know. And so it could be a family member, it can be a family friend, it can be, it's always going to be a person in authority, not to go too far into the law, but no one is actually able to legally consent to anything sexual until they're 18 or older. So there's always going to be somebody that is in authority of them, like the coach, the teacher, these are all people that minors know and they look up to. And these are often those offenders that are the nine out of 10. So as an advocate or in educating, how do you address the, the trust issue? Because a, a child or victim may say, I can't trust anyone or someone mm-hmm. may say to them, a parent or friend may say, you know, you just can't trust anybody. No one is safe. How do you address that? What I would say is trust your instinct first. Your body tells you when you're in harm's way or your body tells you when something is wrong, right? And so with that being said, you trust your body first. You identify who those safe, confidential people are. Allow them to build trust with you. You don't just go into a room and automatically assume that this person is a safe person. But look at who they are. Look at the characteristics. Look and see if they're doing anything that you're uncomfortable with. And when you do that, you will be able to identify who your safe people are. On top of that, If it's somebody that you see that your parents or your guardians have built a strong bond with and they are trustworthy to them, too, that probably is going to be your confirmation that these people are safe. But let me add to it. 
if their behaviors start to change and they feel unsafe, it's okay for you to stop trusting them. Mm-hmm. It's okay for you to take them off of your safe people list. We talked about predators. So what mm-hmm. is what is a predator? You talked about children listening to their or their gut feeling about who a safe person is. How do you define or what is a predator? A safe predator is what we like to identify in the younger ages as tricky people, right? Okay. And so those tricky people are going to be someone that grooms or sexually abuses a child. And you won't see it up front, and that's okay. So what I would say is look for those red flags. And what those red flags are is them making promises that they won't keep them telling you that they're going to get you something, but they never follow through with it. Or even them asking you to keep secrets that a person your age should not be keeping, telling you things that are not appropriate for your age, and also showing you things that are not safe for your age. That is who we consider a predator or somebody that can be an offender. Now, what age, what age would you consider a person being a predator? Do they fall within a certain um, or begin at a certain age to become predators? Absolutely not. There is no specific age. What I would say, if it's anybody that is disrespecting your boundaries mm-hmm. and who you are, then that's somebody that you should keep a distance from. There is no age range. Uh, let's take a minute and talk about grooming. Um, how does a a child know if they are being groomed by a predator? What are those flags? So I like to talk about boundaries when it comes down to talking to children. And so, or youth, I'm sorry. I don't want to offend anyone. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> say youth because not all um, people that are above the age of 13 like to be called children. So my apologies. Uh, When it comes down to the youth, what I would say grooming looks like is starting to show different things that are inappropriate. Um, Complimenting or talking about even their underwear or their body shape. Showing TV shows that are inappropriate for children and adults to be watching together. Um, promising them different things and telling them not to tell their parents. Um, even giving, again, those secrets, telling them about different things that happen to them or different um, conversations that are intimate conversations that should be had between adults and not an adult and a child is different signs of grooming. And that is what grooming looks like. And could be as, as simple as them showing more attention for, to one person than they are to another, them complimenting one person over another so that they can start to pull them in and then start to make those empty promises or even fulfilling promises until they reel them in. So if a child, if a child, um, goes to its parent or guardian and said, um, you know, me and uncle or uh, auntie so-and-so have a secret. How does that, how does that um, parent respond to that? The first thing is to kind of support the child. 
and break down what that secret is. Deem if it's an appropriate secret or if it's not an appropriate secret. If they find that it is an inappropriate secret, they need to educate the child that that's not okay without the child feeling like they're in trouble. Because the last thing you want is if they are being groomed, you definitely don't want them to shut down from you. And so you want to have that full conversation with the child where they're not feeling like they're in trouble, but overall they are feeling that they are protected and they are being heard. And so once you determine that, say for instance, it is an unsafe conversation or it is a conversation that auntie or uncle should not be having with that child, then you educate the child, you protect the child, you have that conversation with that auntie or that uncle and as much as possible either remove that uncle from them or that auntie from them and make sure that the child knows that i'm removing them from you because i don't want you to be harmed and that is not the behavior that we approve of is it going too far for a parent to say to the child there are no secrets in our family uh, we don't have many secrets so uh, you know Basically saying there has to be full disclosure. You know, if someone tells you to keep something a secret, then you should immediately come and tell me. I think it would be better to identify it as a safe secret and an unsafe secret. So understanding that they're going to have secrets, right? Mm -hmm. So thinking about us as a kid, there was a lot of things that we broke that our parents didn't know about. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, those are safe secrets. <laughs> those are safe secrets. <laughs> well, you know, there were it, it, there it, were there were fifteen of us, so we had a lot of safe secrets. <laughs> exactly. There 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 was a few boyfriends and girlfriends that we should not have had. Yeah. And we didn't do anything with them. We just waved at them in school and yeah. that was absolutely okay. <laughs> Those are safe secrets. But when it comes down to unsafe secrets, that is what we want our children to know or our youth to know. That's not okay. And so, again, that's having an adult conversation with the minor. That's not okay because, again, age of consent, even in conversation, is 18 or older. Is that is that just the, the law, uh, the, the law in the state of Illinois? Is that law in the United States, all states? You know, I wish it was the law in the United States, but they have some predatory laws in other states that I'm just not OK with. I okay. think that there are a few states where age of consent is 15 years old, oh, if God. not lower than that. Wow, yeah. that that's sick. So um, what exactly is grooming in context of child sexual abuse and what age range do you classify or categorize child sexual abuse child sexual abuse is anyone under the age of 17 okay so that's child sexual abuse grooming is reeling them in to victimize them that's the overall definition of it. They are reeling them in to make it seem that it is okay, it's appropriate, and they are basically capable of consenting. How does one determine who is a safe person? I know you've said um, 
follow the child to follow their gut. I don't know if another um, word uh, synonym would be their intuition to Mm -hmm. follow their gut to determine who a safe person is. And I ask in the previous podcast, is a child mature enough? to determine who is who is safe so let me go back to the original question how does one determine who a safe person is that's a conversation that parents can have with their children it's a conversation that even youth leaderships can have with their children they determine by one following their gut they also determine by allowing that person to build that trust with them So seeing if that safe person is respecting their boundaries, what they're okay with, what they're not okay with, even when it comes down to conversations. For instance, my son is not a hugger. And so people that go up to him and hug him, he deems them as tricky people because they're not. (laughs) So does he say, does he say, (laughs) mom, that person is tricky. (laughs) No, but at the same time, that's not somebody that he's going to tell that he feels uncomfortable yeah. in, a, in a situation that he's uncomfortable with. But the people that do respect his boundaries, believe it or not, Jamal is a talker yeah. and he talks to the ones that um, respect his boundaries. Yeah. Where we mostly so, fist bump, you know, when we see each other, exactly. we just, that we, and it's at arm's length, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you, you get more than most people. Cause a lot of people get nods and I've heard about some eye rolling. Stuff Is it right? happening, so you're, you're in good hands. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> we see news stories about educators, um, not only educators, but in the faith community who violate trust. When a child has been violated by someone who they thought was a safe person, how do they rebuild that trust? And so they are not suspicious of everybody being a, a tricky person. So that is a conversation that parents, loved ones, and guardians have with them. So when it comes down to it, um, a person, let's say, for instance, someone violated their trust. Um, It takes a lot to rebuild trust because forgiveness does not mean freedom from consequences. And so with that, can you can you say that I've never heard it like that before? I don't think can can you repeat that? Forgiveness does not mean freedom from consequences. Okay. And so with that being said, a lot of times trust has to be rebuilt. And that's one, respecting their boundaries. That's two, giving them grace and time to be able to get comfortable with you. And that's if they can be comfortable with you. Because if they've seen a side of you especially if it was somebody that was trying to groom them, then I would say that relationship should not be built. It should not be rebuilt. That should be someone that you keep a distance. You can forgive them, but it's not saying that I'm comfortable with falling asleep in the same room as you Mm -hmm. when I knew what you were trying to do before. Okay. What are some of the characteristics of a healthy versus uh, unhealthy relationship and you know this would be in whether it is a family 
within the family or within the community? Thank you for asking that. We're going to go back to trust being the first thing, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you have a relationship or a friendship or a family member that you don't trust, you don't have a relationship. You should not be around someone that you feel uncomfortable around or you feel like you're walking on eggshells, right? Um, Being independent. And so it's not I'm leaning on you to tell me who I am, but I am independent of who you are. And that's what makes our friendship, our family relationship so great. It's more than one individual coming together with those personalities. Definitely honesty is going to be what's needed in a healthy relationship, family member, friendship, all of that. Um, Equality is really big. Being able to love and having humor is very big. Communication. And so when we talk about boundaries, if I know that, you drink Pepsi, I'm going to communicate with you that there's a Pepsi in the room and there's a Coca-Cola in the room. But if I just bring you the Coca-Cola, I know that our relationship is on rocky ground. Oh, yes, it is. (laughs) I feel betrayed. (laughs) Exactly. And then it's like, oh, no, I don't want her coming down here. She brings coke. Yes. So it's just like communication is really big. And that's a great part of a healthy relationship, being able to compromise. Not always will you agree on certain things. And so in that, what an unhealthy relationship is, is somebody always winning, somebody always having the other person compromise. But if there's an equal compromise in that relationship, then both people feel valued and both people feel supported. Nastasha, is it okay for a child to say, I don't want to be around him or I don't want to be around her because they make me feel uncomfortable or to say that to a parent or even to say it directly to the person. You make me uncomfortable, so I prefer not to be around you. It's not what you say. It's how you say it. Okay. So let me say that first. But I also am a firm believer that if a child is uncomfortable around somebody, it's a reason behind it. And you should listen to that child on why they were uncomfortable. A lot of times, especially as an advocate, the reason why they were uncomfortable around that parent, that person, including parents, mm-hmm. whether we want to believe it or not, including parents, is because that person was harming them when no one else was watching or grooming them to harm them when no one else was watching. And I'm not saying that that is the case in every case, but that is the reason why I'm a firm believer on it because I've seen it. Seeing it one time is too many times, but I've seen it way too many times that the reason why that child was uncomfortable is because that child was being harmed. What are the types of abuse and what are the characteristics? Okay. So, There are six different types of abuse. The first one is going to be physical abuse. Physical abuse is if somebody is hitting. 
but it's also making someone feel like there is going to be physical abuse put on them. So if you throw a ball at them, you didn't physically touch them, but that's a force or hitting the wall next to them. That's physical abuse. There's verbal abuse that's communicating to them or sometimes even not communicating. The one of the biggest things that I cannot take is the silent treatment when I'm trying to communicate to somebody. And so they are being verbally abusive against me because I'm ready to have this conversation, but they don't want to give me what I need for closure. Well, you know, and men so do men do that a lot in relationships, especially in, in marriages. They just stonewall. They get quiet. I, I didn't know that was called uh, verbal abuse. So you just weaponized uh, Lady Gwen. <laughs> <laughs> you are so welcome, Lady Gwen. <laughs> so let me put in this disclaimer. You should allow a person time to cool down. Yeah. But intentionally not talking to them can be considered verbal abuse, especially if it's to gain power over them. Okay. So not, not during a cool down period, but if you know that this is something that is like burning a fire within them mm -hmm. and you're withholding it intentionally to have power over that person, that's verbal abuse. Okay. That gives it more clarity. I'm, I think I'm okay. <laughs> okay. I'm so glad. <laughs> So then there is sexual abuse, and that is any type of, um, it can be like physically sexual, it can be mentally sexual, or not mentally, I'm sorry, verbally sexual. It can also through be through electronic. Any type of gratification, any type of sexual gratification that gains power over another person, that's sexual abuse. So that can be posting pictures on the internet that that person did not want to post. And those can be explicit pictures that can be sending them a picture of yourself and they never ask for it. And that makes them uncomfortable. It can be having a conversation or catcalling. Those are all types of sexual abuse. Then you have mental abuse and mental abuse is anything that has that person mentally unstable to gain power over them. So it could be a form of verbal abuse to pull them down, calling them stupid, calling them ugly, calling them fat, different things like that. And that continues to weigh on them. There's also emotional abuse where they're questioning who they are. They're questioning their mental or their emotional status. It's changing their moods when they're around you or because you're happy, they're happy because you're sad. They're sad because you're angry. They're scared. And then the last one is financial abuse. Financial abuse is withholding money, mm -hmm. and sometimes it can also be freely giving money to be able to still be in that relationship or have power over another person. So what are some of the, the red flags that people should look out for? Definitely, if you are not able to make your own decisions. That's a red flag. Mm -hmm. If you have to always go to this person or if they're telling you what your day-to-day -day agenda is, that's a red flag. Is that control? Is that control? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That is control. Mm -hmm. and, and let me be clear, that is not, that is not when it comes down to the, the man being the head of the household or the husband being the head of the household. He does make the ultimate decisions, but as we have been taught, the wife is the help me. 
And so usually those decisions are made, but then if a final decision needs to be made, then the majority of the time that is the husband that's making that decision. So we're not saying that, but we're saying controlling everything that they're doing every day. That's a red flag. So of course people want to feel safe. Um, So what kind of or what type of boundaries can be set by youth and parents? First things first is what they're okay with. Mm -hmm. um, As far as they, they can set personal boundaries. Let me first say that they can set personal boundaries. And that is, okay, I'm not a hugger. Let's do a fist bump instead. Mm -hmm. Or I don't go to everybody's houses because I don't like, you know, being outside of my own space. Mm -hmm. That's the boundary that they can set. They can also set boundaries on time. And so in time, it's more so what I'm okay with, what I'm not okay with. You can call me past a certain time or you do not call me. My mom just set a boundary. We can't call her before eight o'clock and it's hard to, (laughs) um, but that's her boundary and I respect it. (laughs) I'm going to have to have a talk with your mom and tell her, tell her mine is 10. There's also boundaries when it comes down to what your um, limitations are when it comes down to social media. You can set those boundaries. Who are you willing to have? What are what content are you willing to um, have on your feed? What content you want to take off your feed? If you have friends that are continuously sharing that content, that's a boundary that you can set. We're just about out of time, and we really need to have more of this conversation and I, I am sure uh, that we, we will. Let me ask you a final question. How can youth advocate for themselves and others? So that is a great way to end this. And so what I would say is these are the three D's for youth to advocate for themselves and others. If a youth finds themselves in an uncomfortable situation or one of their friends, in an uncomfortable situation, they can do one of the three D's. And so the first one is being very direct with that person and saying, hey, I'm uncomfortable. Can you please remove yourself from me or as far as from my space? Or I'm uncomfortable. Can you please not hug me? If it's them protecting their friend, it's just going to that friend and saying, hey, are you okay? You look uncomfortable. The second one is to distract. If they're in school and there's a situation that's happening, they happen to have their books on them, dropping the books that creates a distraction for them to move themselves from the situation or getting their attention on something else that's happening on the other side of the room so that they can remove themselves from that situation. The last thing is to delegate. If they feel uncomfortable in a situation, but they don't feel like they are strong enough or they have that power to be able to say something, they can delegate it to a parent, having that conversation with the parent, to a counselor, to a teacher, or if they are supporting a friend, they can pull other friends in saying, hey, I see that our friend over there is in an uncomfortable situation. Let's go over there and see what we need to do to support them. Well, again, uh, Nastasha, you you have done an amazing job in having this conversation with us. And, um, of course, we'll be having this conversation again 
and probably again and again. Friends, we must have these conversations in our communities, in our homes, in our churches. We want our children to be knowledgeable and feel safe, comfortable, and willing to talk about these things. The more we educate our children and ourselves, the more we can prevent child sexual abuse. Again, Nastasha, thank you so much for being such a gentle giant and an advocate in the community. God bless everybody. Be safe and stay healthy.